Hi, I'm Dr. Paul White, co-author of Rising Above a Toxic Workplace, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringel. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringel here, host of My Quest for the Best, where ambitious small business leaders discover strategies and tactics to unlock your growth potential. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished guests who want to share their knowledge and experiences so you can be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating towards more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Dr. Paul White. Dr. Paul White is co-author of three books, including The Five Languages of Appreciation of the Workplace, which has sold over 400,000 copies. He wrote this with Dr. Gary Chapman, author of the New York Times bestseller, The Five Love Languages. Based on their extensive research and expertise, Dr. White and Dr. Chapman have developed practical ways for leaders and employees to communicate authentic appreciation that leads to increased employee engagement, lower staff turnover, and more positive work environments. He's returning to My Quest for the Best to speak about his book, Rising Above a Toxic Workplace. His previous episode, if you'd like to hear that, is episode 231. So just go to myquestforthebest.com and look for episode 231. Dr. White lives and works in Wichita, Kansas. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Pleasure to have you. So when you set out to write Rising Above a Toxic Workplace, who was the audience you had in mind? Well, Bill, it came out of my work with appreciation as I spoke and did training and continued training. People would come up uh, during breaks and afterwards and tell me nasty stories about their workplace or what a jerk their boss was. And so we have about over 80,000 people on our newsletter list that we pull occasionally. And so I asked people to write me a brief description of their negative experience and then wound up following up with that. And so it's largely really across the organization from frontline workers to sort of frontline supervisors, mid-level managers and up because sort of toxic symptoms occur at every level. One of the things I noted is the subtitle, taking care of yourself in an unhealthy work environment. Nobody sets out to create an unhealthy work environment. What's been your observation as to how that occurs or devolves? Yeah, I hope nobody starts out with the intent of creating one, but you never know. Largely, it comes down to sort of like like any organization or product or process, it has key components. And a toxic workplace, we found it really has three key components. One is what I would call a sick system, which is characterized by disorganization and chaos, poor communication, lack of accountability, and not good decision-making processes. A second part is a toxic leader, Um, and it doesn't have to be at the top of the organization. It could be anywhere across it, supervisors and managers. And then third, dysfunctional colleagues, people who just are dysfunctional in their lives, the way they approach life. They don't really live according to reality. So they blame, make excuses, create conflict, lie, all that kind of stuff. And so those become a hallmark. I would say really a starting point I see a lot is indirect communication, because indirect communication creates all kinds of secondary and downline problems where you're not talking directly to the person you need to, you don't get the approval from them, you go around and so forth. And, and so that's that's sort of a, a hallmark starting point. As you were talking about those three different levels, Paul, I can imagine people listening to this and just nodding vigorously. I think everyone has encountered some aspect of a sick organization, a leader who had some sort of toxic characteristics, and also colleagues who really weren't as interested in getting the work done, 
as much as getting attention for themselves or just sharing whatever malaise they particularly had on their mind. When you talk about direct, indirect communication, isn't there an innocuous side to that where people think that they've mentioned what they need rather than asking directly or given feedback in a way that they thought was kind of cute rather than helpful? Yeah, and it comes from personal style and also sort of family upbringing and context. I mean, I've lived in the Midwest, out West, and in the Southeast, and indirect communication uh, is sort of the norm for a lot of Southerners that they, they're they trying to be polite, but they don't, they sort of hint at things and don't necessarily tell you directly. And for those of us that are a bit more obtuse and don't get the hints, you know, it just passes by us and doesn't really get anything done. Give me an example, if you would. Well, it's sort of like, you know, that was a good presentation. You know, there's always some things that can be improved, but overall it was good. I mean, so somebody can say that and they're sort of saying, I hope you've asked me a follow-up question to know what you could improve, but they don't say it that way. So you may miss it. Or, you know, if you follow up, they may tell you a little bit more. Interesting. So they're putting it out there as an invitation, even though they might be responsible as a manager of the team and saying, well, I think there are some parts that are good and parts that could be improved. And they're waiting for the follow-up question. Well, do you want to be more specific about each area? <laughs> <laughs> right. And most, of, a lot of us don't want to go there. And so we won't ask that because so, we don't, we want to stick with the positive. And people so. waiting for feedback from a presentation that is so-so can only hold their breath for so long too. But the end, yeah, it can be innocuous, but lots of times that it's very intentional and manipulative, you know you're going to get a no from somebody, maybe your direct supervisor or somebody that's really responsible for a certain area that you want some resources. And so you sort of figure out a way to talk to some other people to get them to influence it or go around them and so forth. And it just creates all kinds. Say that someone listening to this is a manager in a small business. Maybe they've got 50 to 100 employees and there are a couple different levels of management and they pick up maybe in the break room, people talking indirectly about a project that where that feedback really needs to get to someone it's not getting to. What could someone do about that in a way that's effective? Well, you just say, hey, have you talked to Bill about that or John or Janice, whoever and say, you know, they really need to hear that directly. And I would strongly encourage you to do so. I think the, the other sort of common example in, uh, with my team, you know, I say, if you have an issue or a challenge with one of your colleagues, don't come talk to me about it if you haven't talked to them first, because it's between the two of you all. And that's the way things get resolved. If you sort of bring in a third party initially without dialoguing and seeking to understand and communicate clearly, there's no reason for me or another third party to get involved. So talk to the person that you're having a struggle with or challenge with and try to work it out that way first. Let's go back to this toxic break room. <laughs> you're in the break room and you hear somebody, they're just being critical about something that's important to you and you hear it indirectly. Maybe there's some value in what they're saying. Maybe it's just not good to run negative criticism like that. Maybe they're just saying they don't like someone, but instead of saying it directly, they're criticizing their work. Sometimes the best response is to ignore it. One of the key aspects of a toxic workplace is negativity. And we know that there's two sort of very practical, easy steps to help reduce negativity. One is not join in with the negative communication. So don't 
add on or nod and say, yeah, I know what you're talking about or whatever, because that just fuels it, right? And so not joining in and maybe even just sort of walking away and say, hey, I'll catch you later, which sends a message of, you know, I don't want to participate in this. When you hear negative communication, not joining in is the first step. And then secondly, whether it's at that point in time or later, you try to bring up a positive topic. Now, it may not be directly related to that or that person, but it could be, man, you know, I'm loving this sunny weather that we're having here before winter hits. Or how about pick your team, the Celtics or whomever. They had a great game last night or really looking forward to family visiting, had a fun weekend with my kids. Just something, any positivity tends to throw sort of water on the, the fire of negativity. So it's pretty simple. And if you do it repeatedly, uh, you're going to start to see some differences. See, that's very interesting because you're not looking to take it on. You're just saying, look, this isn't something that interests me. Let's talk about something positive or neutral, but you're just not going to join in with something like that. And that's some, a way to become not only proactive, but I think a leader in an organization a leader with influence, whether by title or not, just by having a standard as to what you'll accept as part of the conversation in the workplace. Isn't that similar to what you advocate in the book? Yeah, absolutely. One of the things about workplace culture is most of us tend to think about it as being external to us, that it happens to us. But in actuality, we're part of it and we can make a change. Now, we may or may not be able to make a significant change in certain areas, but you can almost always make some impact on the interactions that you're having on a daily basis with people around you by your behavior. You know, John Maxwell, who most of us know as a sort of leadership guru, talks about that, you know, life is essentially 90%, I'm sorry, 10% of what happens to me, 90% of how I respond. And so our response is critical in the whole formation of this. It can feel overwhelming at times, but nonetheless, we can have an impact. I agree. I go back to Covey's thoughts about proactivity, where he talks about not only what happens to you when somebody says something that might trigger a response, but taking a pause there and thinking how you want to respond consciously rather than just responding emotionally. And it's in that pause that you really gain self-mastery and control about not contributing to a negative workplace. Because like you say, culture is how things are done around a particular organization or group. Culture is essentially the aggregate of thousands of individual interactions over time. And so if we can slowly or in small ways change the the quality of those interactions, we're going to be impacting uh, culture frequently. And I'm thinking of small businesses that might be family owned. You might be working with someone, I'm thinking of a company that was doing uh, woodwork and they had veneers and they had different brothers working in different divisions. They really didn't get along. And a lot of the stress was due to them having disagreements or vying for favoritism among the father who was still CEO. If someone listening finds themselves in a situation where they really can't just always walk away, they can't choose to walk away from family, especially, you know, maybe at Thanksgiving dinner or uh, holidays, stuff like that. And you have to have interactions with them and they have history and it's not always a pleasant history. And we're looking to build a better culture. What do you advise for someone who is taking that tack in an organization? Two things. First, I grew up in the context of a family-owned business, three generations and cousins and uncles and aunts and siblings and siblings-in-laws and all that. So I've been there and done that. I mean, you know, and at holidays, it got so bad that the 
largely the women said, you know, I don't want to hear business over lunch. And that didn't work until they said, if you talk about business, you do not get any dessert or pie. So that that worked for them. But having experienced that, and I consult with family-owned businesses and deal with the family issues. First, I would make a point that you always have a choice. Uh, you may not like the choice that you have or the results of them, but you don't have to stay there. And I've worked with a number of family members who were in a family business that at some point decided it was better for their health or their marriage to leave. And so it may feel like you can't, but you can. It may mean that people are mad at you or feel like you're not appreciative or whatever. Well, you know, that may be less pain than some of the stuff you're dealing with. So the challenge with family businesses is that you have sort of really three sets of systems that interact, right? You have the family system, which has its own set of rules and communication and decision making. And it's not typically not top down. It, it's less so than it used to be. And then you have business ownership where the owner gets to decide and tell people what to do and what they're going to do with it. And then you have business management, which is to implement the, the business owner's vision and goals. And those kinds of communication patterns, when you, you know, my two of my brothers worked together, one worked on the other, and, and then the older brother, uh, you know, reported directly to my dad. And, you know, they can go back and forth from family to owner manager kind of conversations in the same thing, you know, and an owner can tell a manager what to do, but father or senior family member probably doesn't go well if you tell an adult child or adult family member what to do because there's different rules about it. It's a challenge and you have to determine, are you talking about as a what your role is? In fact, there's a great book called Hats Off to You that helps you sort of figure out, okay, am I talking as a manager here to the owner or the CEO, or am I talking as a son to my senior father or mother? And it's sort of crazy making, but the more you can clarify that, the, the better things will go. Earlier, you said that there were two aspects to working in a family business, and one was that you always have a choice. Is the second aspect understanding your role in the company and in the context of the family? Yeah, that you've got to understand the complications or the, the complexity of a family own business and the interaction of the different roles and how those play out through communication and decision making largely and responsibility and privileges because an owner can choose to support a family member with the assets of the business that's their right as an owner but it flows over into the family whether or not that's good for the family or the business usually it, it creates problems for within the business if you hire a family member that's not qualified or competent in a position. Other people resent it. It hurts the competency of the business itself. But an owner has the right to do that. There are two points that came out as I was reading the book that I really wanted to make sure I asked you about. One of them is, is that a lot of times the idea of sharing appreciation in the workplace is thought of as a really, really important step, yet there's enormous layers, <laughs> and I think of it kind of like a, a barnacle layer, of cynicism that's built up where people either can't hear it or they deflect it or they distort the appreciation. Maybe in, in a workshop, somebody says, all right, appreciate something to the person to your left who that you see that they do well at work. And you say, well, Frank, I think that you're someone who is 
really on top of your game. You know your discipline really well. And I appreciate how you came through with that project two months ago. I thought that was outstanding. And then everyone waits to hear what Frank says back. And Frank says, well, that's a load of garbage. Right. Yeah, I've had I, I had a story where somebody got a compliment and the, the response was, whatever. The, the issue is, and I, and I was brought into a situation where the, we, they asked me to talk about and do training around appreciation in the workplace. But there was so much distrust and resentment and feelings of disrespect that there was no reason for us to go there. So we had to back up and work on sort of some basic rules about communication and the issue of trust and distrust and respect. Because, you know, if a person doesn't trust another person, doesn't matter what they communicate. It can be appreciation or something else, and it's not going to work. So there is a foundational layer that needs to be there, of, and that's what you know business relationships are built on. I imagine that there might be organizations or people from organizations listening who are saying, gosh, rules for communication. We ought to have some of those. What would you suggest as a starting point? Two or three rules, you know, such as allowing someone to finish their thoughts before jumping in. What might be some rules that you think of to help establish that level of fundamental trust and respect? Unfortunately, Bill, we have to go back to even a, a more foundational level. And that is that you are honest and you have integrity about what you're saying, which means that you say what you mean. You are telling the truth as, you know, to, to, you may not have all the information, but as opposed to, I mean, people that are deceitful or withhold information information, right? They tell partial truth. So it's like somebody comes in late again and they say, well, you know, 235 was really backed up. That may be true, but they didn't tell you that they also left 15 to 20 minutes late, right? And so they withhold information and the whole direct versus indirect communication. You talk to the people that need to be involved and don't to those others necessarily. If you are honest and upfront, and own your own thoughts and feelings and soften, I, I think largely we've lost sort of some ways of communicating that are a little more respectful, that it's not that everything is just a hard-nosed fact, but it's like, you know, I think this or... Uh, it seems to me, and if you sort of soften your your delivery, it's easier to re respond and receive it, even if it, the other person disagrees with you. But if you say this is a fact, or you know that this is just the way it is, then then it sets up a potential conflict just from how you communicate. So I know you would pick up on this, and I'm thinking of what somebody said recently, and they said it is a fact. I honestly believe you did a terrible job. <laughs> Can you break down how you process that and would help that person communicate what they're looking to convey in a way that is better received and also more accurate? Well, assuming I'm not the person that's talking to about it, I would say, well, what part of it is a fact? I mean, the fact that you believe it or that they did, a, you know, from your point of view, they did a terrible job. And the other part that is important in communication is to avoid extreme words like you never, you always. Terrible is different than bad or not so great, could have been better, or this is the absolute best way to do this versus, you know, I think this is a good idea. And some people get into habits of communicating their perceptions or beliefs in very extreme ways that the other person almost feels compelled to have to take the other side to counterbalance the position. 
So I find that you got to help them understand. And usually as a consultant, I mean, I'm saying, well, when I hear that, this is how I feel and respond. And because if I can help them understand that, in fact, I would say a key skill that's lacking in our culture is what's called perspective taking ability. Give me an example of how that works. Well, it's just being able to see and understand the situation from somebody else's point of view and that we get into right and wrong kinds of things or how it impacts me, but we don't stop to think about, you know, if we are going to expand our, you know, manufacturing hours and we've got a third shift that we're going to run or whatever, how does that impact the next level up of maybe purchasing or delivery and so forth? And we just need to stop and think not just about from our own position, but how might this impact others? That's a point well taken. And it's a great segue into the second point that I really wanted to hear your perspectives on. And that is when a company has a conflict between what they say their external goal is and how they actually behave internally. Let me give you an example. It might be that the company says, we really care about the customer's experience. We really want the customer to have a great experience so that they're loyal to us. And yet internally, all of their metrics drive towards highest profitability. All their reward systems are all about minimizing contact or anything that could erode the profit margin. How do you help leaders of a company come to terms with goals and objectives that are on a collision course like that? First, you got to see if they if they want input about it. They may not give a rip. I mean, and so it's sort of like don't give advice an eighteen year old young adult guy. You know, most of them don't care to hear anything. Let me let me change the situation. You're brought in as a consultant because they're puzzled as to why people feel so conflicted and stressed. One of the best phrases I know in difficult situations is the phrase, I'm confused. And you say, you know, I'm confused because on the one hand, you guys say that customer service or customer experience is important to you and serving customers well. But I observe or I hear feedback from people that if somebody returns something that they think was wrong, you know, they've got to pay for the shipping or we don't treat them well or whatever. And you juxtapose the two things. And the I'm confused part is is helpful because it's a it's you take a one down position. You're saying, you know, I don't understand this versus a more direct kind of, you know that you guys are doing this and saying that and they don't match up because sometimes you don't fully understand and you want to hear their perspective. I mean, it's like, why are they doing that? And you need to, if you're going to help people make different decisions, you have to understand what's important to them and maybe a different way to get there. And so I'm confused, one down position, it allows them to talk and share their perspective. It allows you to set up the juxtaposition of what you're observing and what you're hearing and understand that. And then you can do some more, you know, some investigation and fact finding about that in response to what they say or believe. I would just want to underscore that because in order for that to be successful, the small business leaders listening have to be humble enough to be able to use the phrase, I don't understand, with your managers and genuinely mean it that they're uh, they're confused and they want that clarity that comes from exploring how maybe conflicting objectives or values or reward systems are set up or implemented. And that's a really, really powerful thing that I hope that everyone listening gets out of this conversation. Paul, what would you say from your experience and the feedback you've gotten from writing these books and traveling and, and talking to so many different business leaders, what would you say is a skill related to rising above a toxic workplace that people listening ought to invest time in learning? Well, I think a skill 
that we all need to learn, regardless of whether we're in an unhealthy, dysfunctional workplace or sort of a normal, difficult one or even in a really great place for a period of time, is we have to understand that we have to take care of ourselves. And that includes, you know, having some priorities and setting boundaries because an organization largely exists for its own good. I mean, it may exist to serve people, but ultimately an organization is there to try to keep going. And so especially dysfunctional ones will continue to use up and then spit out parts or pieces or people that for their good, and then they don't care about them after they've left. And so you have to understand that it's not that necessarily they have malintent, although some may, but if anybody's going to take care of you, you got to do it. And so that includes sort of monitoring your health, both physically, relationally, emotionally, and, and taking steps to make sure that your work life isn't just sucking the life out of you, and then you start to essentially decline or die as a person as a result of just, you know, not doing the things that we need to to keep going and keep healthy. I think that's excellent advice. It's making sure that we're healthy enough first so that we can be productive and then influence others positively. It goes back to the old, if the oxygen mass drops from an from an airline, <laughs> put yours on first before you help others. People say, well, I, I don't know that I can do that. Well, in family business, I deal with, you know, all different roles. And I tell moms, I say, you know, if you go down, the family's going down. It's the same thing for leaders. If they can give and give and give, but if they either, whether it's emotionally become discouraged, depressed, physically, you know, become ill or have just chronic pain, they're not really helping the business. And so it behooves us all to make sure that we're sleeping well. And what happens in stressful situations is we tend to punt the things that help recreate health for us, sleep, exercise, recreational activities, supportive relationships. And that's okay to do for a short time. There's times when we have to sort of focus and focus our attention and resources. But if you do that long term, it's not going to bode well for you. And as important as it is to take care of oneself, you also have advice under the six ways to say sane chapter to get affirmation from other functional folk. And I think that's important to remember is that within an organization, seek out others who have not necessarily the exact same perspective you do, but at least the attitude of wanting to improve things and the open-mindedness of wanting to consciously build a culture that is supportive rather than destructive, one that builds people up and asks them to bring their best selves to work rather than asking them to just bring a tiny sliver of their energy, attention, and personality. Is there anything you'd like to add to that? A key part for surviving a toxic workplace or a dysfunctional kind of setting is to have someone that is viewed as relatively healthy in their perspective on things and you can use as a sounding board. Because one of the things that happens when you're in a toxic environment is you get fogged. I mean, you, you're going into a meeting and you think, man, this person is in trouble. You know, they did not do what they're supposed to. And during the meeting, they're able to turn the table and they come out singing like a you know canary and somebody else got ding and you come out. You go, what just happened? How did that happen? And you get confused. And so you've got to have somebody that you can bounce your thoughts and observations on and say, am I thinking right about this or what am I missing? They don't have to necessarily be involved in the situation, but you can sort of describe the dynamics. A lot of times people can say, well, it sounds sort of weird to me. And, uh, you know, and then they ask clarifying questions. So having a, a trusted sounding board is really critical. Paul, I'd love to thank you so much for joining me at My Quest for the Best. You've shared with us some great ideas that I just want to reiterate a few. What is the challenge 
that if somebody comes to you and looks to involve you in a conversation and step in as a third party, say, make sure you talk to them first before you talk to me. Empower them to solve their own problem and let them know that that's what you expect of them. Making sure that when people are you observe or encounter people who are being negative, that you have two approaches. One is to not join in, and that's a positive way to add to the culture. And a second one is to bring up a positive topic that helps people focus on something either neutral or more strongly positive. Growing up in a family business was an interesting topic and appreciating the complexity of that, where you have three levels of dynamics that need to be taken into account. The family level, the business ownership level, and the business management level. We gave some really great practical tips about avoiding extreme words in, in giving feedback and offering the phrase, you know, I'm confused, and helping people see that on the one hand, they're making a statement about going in a certain direction, and on the other hand, they're creating systems or rewards or offering things that are contrary to that. And the emphasis on making sure that people need to stay healthy themselves has to be underscored, because everyone listening to this has had experience working in some aspect of a culture that was toxic or not necessarily as healthy as, as we'd like. And it's always important to remember to take care of ourselves with our health, our priorities, our boundaries, because no one's going to do that for us. In order to survive and be effective as a person, you've got to be able to take your health and your best self to work each and every day. So Dr. Paul White, for these reasons and so many more, I've so enjoyed this conversation with you and thank you for joining me again on my quest for the best. That, uh, I'm glad to be a part. Paul, before we leave, I know that you've got a ratings of toxic symptoms assessment and other information on your website. Can you tell us where we could find out more about you and your work? Yeah, sort of the mothership of all the information, both about appreciation at work and toxic workplaces, appreciation at work.com. It's the word at, not the at sign, but appreciation at work.com. Once again, thanks so much for joining me, Paul. Yeah. Hi, this is Bill. Before you go, I just want to ask you a quick favor. If you've enjoyed this interview on My Quest for the Best, I'd love it if you'd go to iTunes, look up My Quest for the Best, and subscribe. I want to make sure you don't miss the very next episode we have coming up. We've got a lineup of terrific guests, and I know that if you enjoyed this one, you'll like what you find coming up soon. Also, feel free to give it a comment, a like, because we work hard to put these interviews together, and I appreciate making sure that we're reaching you and serving you in the, the best way possible. I look forward to reading your comments and catch you on the next interview. Thanks so much.